Hello, and welcome to the Robert A. Heinlein Book Club. Uh, and today I'm going to discuss some of my thoughts about Logic of Empire, uh, which was published in Astounding Magazine in, uh, on March, in March 1941. I think this might be one of the issues where he published two articles. Most, actually, I think most of the 1941 um, issues we have a couple Heinlein stories. Some are under, under different names, of course. But uh, Logic of Empire is, uh, well, one, one interesting thing to say about this is if you actually look at the actual Astounding Magazine from 1941, it ends with a blurb to the reader uh, essentially setting up the, the future history. I don't know if this is the first that did it. I didn't notice it in the other articles, and I'm not quite doing this chronologically issue by issue. I've been uh, just kind of doing it by year by year and bouncing around the articles in kind of a, a random order. Um, but this sets up the future history uh, narrative in a way. So I was wondering before, like, was how much of this was like after the fact or how much of this was something Heinlein was kind of thinking through while he was writing this? And it seems he, at least at this point, he has this idea of a future history. Now, overall, I don't think the future history world First of all, it's so broad. It covers hundreds and hundreds of years and great changes in different settings. It's it's really like certain characters, certain name droppings crossing over. So I don't think it's a really great example of world building. And for me as a reader of Heinlein, I'm not getting that much out of the future history stuff. Like the fact that Misfit is set after Coventry. Okay. Um, sure. I don't really see the connection. Or, uh, you know, actually Misfit, I think, is in the future history, which was published earlier, and it's not mentioned in this little bird. But I'll, I'll read it. I'll read it so you know uh, what it says. It says, Astounding readers may or may not, have been no may not have noticed all of Robert Heinlein's stories are based on a common proposed future history of the world with emphasis on the history of America. Logic of Empire follows in the future history the time of roads must roll and blow-ups happen and precedes the time of if this goes on in Coventry. And if this goes on, the original prophet was referred to frequently, the man who was set up the harsh, hard, harsh theocratic dictatorship that ruled the America at the time of if this goes on. He was Nicomiah Scudder. Now, Nicomiah Scudder, his place here is he's mentioned. There's a religious movement developing among the, the, the contract slaves, the indentured servant slaves slash slaves of Venus uh, as a kind of a protest movement. So we, we get a little taste of the origin of it. But in the sense of, a, of like an economic vision or even a political vision, Heinlein's not really there in this future history stuff. It's, it's pieces throughout that he's, he's kind of connecting but I don't see the like the then there's some thematic connections to be sure. But I don't I don't see the world building that we've come to expect in like fiction that comes out these days. Um, so that's fine. I mean this is this is pre Lord of the Rings too. So let's let's not uh, in a sense it's it's kind of visionary to 
to do this. I don't know of any other science fiction writer prior to Heinlein that took this much time creating a world. You had sequels. You had like the, um, you know, the, the, the John Carter stuff, the Mars stuff, um, Edgar Rice Burroughs. And there's, there's like certain characters and things, but this is different. This isn't just taking one character and going through his adventures over several novels. This is trying to piece together a world. Um, now I will have to take, uh, a little bit of a complaint here. He says, uh, this must be Campbell who writes this. He says, all of Heinlein's stories are based on a common proposed future history, which I don't think that's true, even if you just take the Heinlein stories. Um, certainly, I mean, the ones published under his name. Certainly, if you take the stories not published under his name, some of them are, um, those are outside of the future history. But this is something I'm going to check out right now. Um, it might be true, actually, um, if we just take the astounding ones. Now, he certainly published, like, uh, um, well, Let There Be Light. I think that's future history. But that was published as Lyle Monroe. Um, they, that's published in Unknown. Um, by his bootstraps, that's he's published as McDonald. Magic Inc., uh, that's published in Unknown Fantasy Fiction. So if you look at the, the astounding stories... Uh, Lifeline, Misfit, Let There Be Light, The Rose Must Roll, Requiem, If This Goes On, Coventry, Blow Ups Happen, Universe, Common Sense. Um, yeah, I, I, maybe it's right. If we just limit it to stories published under Heinlein's name in Astounding, this, 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 this seems to check out. So, um, great. That's why that's, we'll, we'll keep our eyes open for the first Astounding story that's not part of this future history. Um, a series certainly when we get to the juveniles he's, he's off doing other things but um but yeah um that's there if you want it all right so what do we have here in logic of empire um great title by the way uh of course empires do have a logic and that logic is based on an exploitation um and so that's what we get here uh uh Essentially, the story opens with a debate between our major characters, Humphrey Wingate, who is defending the contract labor system on Venus, and someone else, Jones, who is opposing it, saying this is essentially just slavery. So the way this works is how slavery in the modern world essentially works. You know, people, except maybe in a few countries, don't literally own people legally. That, that whatever legal regime allowed that, you to own and buy a person, you know, to buy a person, to trade a person, to do what you want with that person. Those, of course, existed in various forms throughout human history. Uh, it was, of course, crucial to the building of capitalism. That chattel, we call that chattel slavery, right? And when we look at modern slavery, I think like maybe, maybe it's even changed in Mauritania. I think for a while in Mauritania, you could, you know, own a person, but I think even that's been uh, changed or phased out. But there's, of course, plenty of slaves on the planet earth right now um in fact i saw one statistic that there's more slaves now than any point in human history of course that's in, in raw numbers uh, percentage wise so uh we're all societies with slaves around but those slaves tend to be of this type where people have to pay off debts someone else controls their passport controls their movement uh forces them into a relationship where they have to work off their debts uh perpetually and if you can't get out of that then we can 
say, okay, that's essentially slavery. It's like an indentured servitude that's perpetual and you can't really escape, even though the, you're sold an excuse that you can uh, escape. So here, the rule is you have to give two weeks notice and you can leave at any time, but only if you've paid off your indentured fees. You know, like the and here it's literally modeled off of the like the how the British people in North America is with indentured servants, right? Like you pay the fee or that someone else pays your fee to go over there, but you pay it off. And that paying it off becomes an indenture, which you work off for a certain set number of years. It's usually it wasn't fine. A number of uh, dollars or pounds or whatever. Um, that would probably made those much more like this. Uh, much hairier, but it was a number of years, but it could be extended through misdeeds uh, for, you could voluntarily do it, I guess, for whatever reason, but often for some kind of misbehaving, running away, not following the rules, you could get years added to that. And that contract could be bought and sold. You're not being bought and sold, it's the contract. So this is just how indentured servitude worked. And that's obviously Heinlein's model here. Uh, and they start out, the story, characters start on the story debating whether it's slavery or not. And Wingate, who is our main point of view character throughout the story, says it's not. It's just you, you, can, you can leave at any time as long as you pay off your debts. And then the, giving this optimistic view, it's a way for people to move to Venus. It's a way for people to get a new start. It's a way for, um, you know, people are free to go into those contracts or things. Um, he justifies it this way. He says, uh, you never had to work for a living in your life and you think it's just too dreadful that anyone else should have to. No, wait a minute. Listen to me. The company's clients on Venus are a damn sight better off than most people in their own class right here on Earth. They're certain of a job, of food, of a place to sleep. If they get sick, they're certain of the medical attention. The trouble with people of, of that class is they don't want to work. And then Jones says, who does? Again, he kind of has this bougie idea that work is horrible. And, and I mean, I kind of feel that too. I don't think you need to be from that class to think work is horrible or to think work doesn't have value. This might be something Heinlein is a little blinkered by. Work is drudgery for most people uh, and people who have jobs they like that don't degrade them, that don't, well, that's all jobs exploit, but that, that you can get up every day and feel proud of your work or whatever. Those people exist, of course, but if you think that's all work, you're, you're coming at it from a privileged perspective of your own experience. It's a bit of like a survivorship bias there. Um, of course, most of us with jobs that really are drudgery, not really gainful, not allowing us to really make the money we need to survive, have a very different perspective of work. But this is uh, Wingate responds. Don't be funny. The trouble is that they weren't under a tight, uh, they weren't under a fairly tight contract, they'd throw up the good job the minute they got bored with it and expect the company to give them a free ride back to Earth. End quote. So he's saying it's it's the only way we can settle Venus, essentially. If we allow people to just come on a whim, other people paying for their contracts, someone's got to pay for those plane tickets, those space shuttle tickets, spaceship tickets, whatever it is. Someone's got to pay for it, and it's not going to be the working poor. So the only way they can do is, is to go into debt, right? Of course, another system might be conceivable, but the fact that we have this historical precedent of a place with a lot of free land. And here we have an indigenous population too that's being supplanted by these workers who are brought in by capital. So the allegory for America, certainly. Um, except we don't have chattel slavery here, which of course the United States had both. This indentured ship kind of slavery and, and real true chattel slavery. Um, A lot of parallels with America is my point. Uh, 
Anyways, what happens is our characters get essentially shanghaied. They they kind of get drunk, and apparently they, they, they sign a contract while they're drunk. They get tricked into it, and it kind of feeds into their bet that they're making with each other. I think Wingate says, like, I bet you we can get out in two months, right? And it'll be an adventure. We can go to Venus, check it out, and be back. You know, we're rich. We can pay off our indentured. The problem is they're not going to have access to other money, so just paying it off is not going to be um, as easy as all that. Um, so they're, they're really stupid, and they don't have to, but they sign. I, I think a better story would have been from the perspective of working class people who who get forced into it. I think Heinlein, you know, uses these kinds of characters a little too often. These more privileged, educated, uh, somewhat kind of often kind of pompous classes like Wingate's kind of horrible in a way he's presented like the only attractive person on Venus because everyone's working the shitty jobs and he just came so he's sort of hot and so the women like him too even his owners or his contract owner's daughter has the hots for him it's it's those things that I, I sometimes kind of like about Heinlein stories the sexiness it comes off kind of weird and and, and, and icky in in this in this story but that's just me. Um, anyways, they get Shanghai and they end up on the way to Venus. They try to get out of it, but they find out that these contracts can be broken in 12 hours after being signed. But they found it was like 12.01, 12 hours and one minute ago that they signed it. And so they're stuck. So they go to Venus. Um, then they end up being sold to different places. Jones goes to the South Pole of Venus and Wingate is somewhere else. And they just get put to work doing various jobs. Um, and there's another system of control here. So he just thinks, okay, this sucks. I can't just, you know, I don't have access to my debit card. I can't just pay off my contract. I'm going to have to do this. But I can because I can just save every penny, work off the contract. Don't, you know, eat the food they give me. Limit myself. Don't go on any trips. Don't do any side pleasures. Save my money and I'll be out of here at the very worst in those six years. That'll take the pay it off, but maybe I can figure out a solution before then. So that's Wingate's sort of optimistic solution to the problem. The, the situation is, is not, that's not really possible because we are told that, um, and well, this happens to Wingate, is that basically to sleep on Venus, to sleep in these conditions on this planet, with it has that weird cycle of the days where a day and a, a year are the same, essentially. Um, the way you do that is through intoxicants. It's basically through alcohol that they give people and you have to pay for that. So he can only sleep by drinking this drink every night and that just puts him deeper and deeper into debt. So that solution is cut off. And that's how we learn one of the major means of control is, is essentially this little Soma drink that, that the people get, which has a price tag with it. So you can never really pay off your debt. And that's why it really is a type of perpetual slavery, even though no one is owning someone else. It's not chattel slavery, but it is an actual, for all intents and purposes, it's it's a type of slavery. Um, so he eventually transitions to Venetian life in various ways uh, through his, his, he adapts to the situation, he adapts to the work. Uh, it's really hot, of course, so everyone, no one has any clothes on and no one is modest and, and men and women alike are basically wanting to come around naked. We have an indigenous population and there's not much that Heinlein does with the indigenous population, unfortunately. They're just presented as sort of like these amphibian frog people 
that um I, I get I guessing Heinlein did it because there's a lot he could have done with this if he wants to continue the metaphor of the United States because yeah you could, it could be a place people run off to it could be uh, there could be a conflict between the indigenous people and the, the humans on Venus um, there could be alternate political visions there, there could have been a lot instead they're just sort of like more more akin to indigenous wildlife he doesn't do much with them in the plot of the story could have but doesn't. I think he does more in books like uh, like The Juvenile, where they go to Mars. Where they really have a culture that we get a window into, they have a perspective, they have a political point of view. So, And obviously in Stranger in a Strange Land, we get a really uh, interesting window into um, Martian culture. There. Of course, I don't think that's in future history. Uh, so this is. Um, so, a few missed chances in the story. Um, I think the other missed chance is getting him out at all. Like eventually Jones comes back. He's worked his way. He's, he's figured out a way to get, get access to his money and, and get out. And he buy, he essentially buys Wingate's contract. And through that, they're able to escape Venus and eventually get back to Earth. And it's at this point that the story sort of loses me right at the end. I think if he didn't have the end, I'd be fine. I have a few grumbling with this, this story, but it's the ending that... Uh, really bothered me. Like I don't, I don't really get triggered by this stuff. But I was like, that is really a bad take, Mister Heinlein. And why did you do that? You didn't have to. You now. Let's assume now that th let's assume as I think it's pretty obvious that this is all like an allegory for the history of the Americas and slavery in the Americas, right? Because a lot of these arguments. Like, they, we brought them out of Africa. We Look how bad they would have been off if they stayed in Africa. That was a real argument used by pro-slavery people. Um, that work is valuable. That work is good, and it enlightens people, and it helps with progress. Those are arguments that were given to defend slavery. The whole geography of it, the, the labor market dynamics are very similar. The indigenous people, even though underused here, all of that is, tell, is telling us to think about American history. And at least indentured servitude in the Americas, if not actual slavery. So, how does the story end? Well, the story ends with Wingate writing his memoirs, writing a, essentially a slave narrative. And he writes it, and he tells his story, and he takes it to a publisher. And the publisher says, nope, there won't be any interest in this. Uh, you're not going to be able to publish this. No one's going to care. Um, but eventually it gets published. Someone He finds someone who's going to publish it, but they change it. And it gets, in the form it's published in, it's full of titillating, this is how it's described as like titillating exaggerations of the reality. So for instance, we have a bunch about um, like the whipping. He makes a big point of here of, of the whipping being exaggerated. Wingate says, I was never whipped in, in, in Venus. Um, and the sexualization of the nudity. Uh, says, well, we were all new. That was just because it was hot and, and we got used to it. It wasn't sexualized. And then the publisher's like, well, we have to do it this way because it's the only way anyone's going to buy this if it's exaggerated and titillating. Here's the problem with this is Heinlein could have made Venetian slavery full of those elements that were in American slavery, like the sexual violence like the, the white gaze on black women, for instance. He, our character could have witnessed things like that. 
could have had whipping. Why not, right? It could have had those things that more directly paralleled slavery in the Americas. Does he not know about that? Or, and here's where, I guess I'm not 100% sure that's true, but I feel it in my bones that this is, that Heinlein has, Heinlein read the narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass and thought, he's being sensationalist. It couldn't have been that bad, really. You know, the scene in Frederick Douglass's narrative where he sees his aunt being whipped and stripped naked, right? Like those are so powerful moments in in the narratives of slavery in America, right? The sexual violence, Cherry Jacobs's account, for instance, the physical violence, the brutality. It was key in, uh, and, and actually he does call out like Uncle Tam's cabin here, and and kind of suggests that. Maybe that was a little overly titillate. There's a little too much titillation in that novel too, you know, which many people took as an accurate description of slavery. And of course it was fiction, but it's based, it was, ba if you read the slave narratives that were based by real people, like Wingate's book is supposed to be, those are accurate. Like all other research has confirmed that this stuff is how it actually worked. Maybe it wasn't the same for every slave, obviously, but this was violence, sexual violence, breaking up families were integral to how slavery worked in America. So here's the conversation where Uncle Tom's cabin is mentioned. He says, and listen to this, Wingrate went on, crowded like cattle in the enclosure, their naked bodies gleaming with sweat. The women's slaves shrank from the, oh, hell, I can't go on. Well, they did wear nothing but harnesses. Yes, yes, but that has nothing to do with the case. Venus costume is a necessary consignment of the weather. There's no excuse to leer about it. He's turned my book into a ruddy sex show, and he has the nerve to defend his actions. He claims that social pamphleteering is dependent on extravagant language. Well, maybe he's got something. Gulliver's language certainly had some racy passages, and the whipping scenes in Uncle Tom's Cabin aren't anything to hand to the kid to read, not to mention Grapes of Wrath. Well, I'll be damned if I'll resort to that kind of cheap sensationalism. I've got a perfectly straightforward case that anyone can understand. End quote. So he calls Uncle Tom's Cabin, Grapes of Wrath, um, cheap sensationalism. I don't see how else to read it. And why do that? Why He could have come at this in a different way. He could have just said, like this stuff didn't happen to me, it happened to like people I witnessed. Right? Or just take off this whole thing about this being sexualized. Why is it sexualized? When you read Frederick Douglass's narrative and you see a woman without her top on being whipped and you get the sense of sexual violence through the master, you're not titillated sexually by that unless you are psycho, right? You just see the theme, right? It's, it's like when you witness like a rape on TV, you, you sh a normal person shouldn't get excited by that, right? It's an honest depiction of what happens to people. There's an attempt to be that. And, and maybe we shouldn't depict that. I don't know, because there are those people out there who do maybe get off on that. But he could have handled this in a much, much better way if we would have put some thought to it, unless he really does think at the end of the day that Harriet Jacobs, Frederick Douglass, Solomon Northrup, and these people were being sensationalist. So he seems to be suggesting this whole genre of slave narrative as it came up in America was political propaganda that only 
could really get its teeth into the American psyche through lies. And okay, is it political propaganda? Yeah, it's political propaganda. It was writing that tried to convince people of a political position, tried to build up a movement against slavery. Doesn't mean it's not true. Doesn't mean what Harry Jacobs said happened to her didn't happen to her. Um, so we get a little, I'm, that's it. That's what I'm going to say about it. I'm going to wrap up soon. We also get a little bit of economics here where Heinlein sort of, again, this is like, why do you have to include this? You could have worked it into the story to discuss the economic situation, but you don't have to like at the end kind of make slavery be presented as somehow inevitable. Like there was no alternative. Jones says, I've been wondering how long it would take you to get your eyes open. What is your case? It's nothing new. It happened in the Old South. It happened again in California and Mexico and Australia and South Africa. Why? Because in any expanding free enterprise system, which does not have a money system designed to fit its requirements, the use of mother country capital to develop the colonies inevitably results in subsistence level wages at home and slave labor in the colonies. And all the goodwill in the world won't change it because the basic problem is one of requiring scientific analysis and a mathematical mind. End quote. It's like, give me a break, Heinlein. Like, slavery in the Atlantic, what you're referencing here in the book, was the key, key to modernity. It was itself modern. It was funded by capital. It was funded by money, right? It's like, what were, what, why did people go on the slave trade expedition? Why were people growing sugar? Because of a lack of money? No, they were trying to make money, right? They were trying to exploit a labor force to expand their wealth. And then that wealth triggered industrial capitalism, right? The, the capital system was built on slavery. This is the argument of Robin Blackburn's and the origins of colonial slavery. It's the argument of Eric Williams way back at the time that Heinlein was writing this, I think in the 40s. So... Yeah, he doesn't have, he's not up to date on history about slavery, but he's got an opinion about slavery nonetheless. And that opinion is it's a medieval feudal system that only exists in situations where you don't have a well-developed capitalism and a well-developed, and, and then like somehow the solution is science and technology. No, so that science and technology in modernity helped enforce slavery. Scientific racism was a, you know, comes after right? That. It was rational people figuring out like insurance prices for slaves in New York or London. Stock markets for this. It was smart, educated, scientific-minded people that sustained the system of Atlantic slavery. So the whole thing falls apart in the end because Heinlein can't help himself from making these really dumb arguments that are just wrong and they cloud and muddy what otherwise could have been a pretty good story. Um, I would have written it differently. Probably most of you would have written it differently. But the idea of exploring this theme of contract labor and slavery in Venus, bravo to that. I mean, that's a great theme. But I'm not too happy with like the rest of the way the story went. So... Um, I guess I'll leave it at that. I won't uh, rant too much about uh, that. So next uh, will be, I guess I'll do We Also Walk Dogs will be next. 
Okay, so it's gonna be we all. I also walk dogs. Uh, then I got Then I'll do Methuselah's children. That'll finish up the future history stuff published before the war. Um, I think Beyond This Horizon. No, that I'll do. That's that. I think. I don't know if that's future history either. But anyways, that will do when I when I jump to 1942. So before the war, um, the, I mean, he already had gone to war, but there's still some art, some stories to be published. I think beyond this horizon, um, I don't want to forget that it's not on the list of short stories because it's uh, was it's published later as a novel. Um, but this was a another fix up, originally published in two issues, April and May. Uh, they're McDonald stories. I think they're not in the future history. Uh, and then I got uh, By His Bootstraps, The Crooked House, Lost Legacy, Elsewhere, Beyond Doubt. No, so that's that's what's going ahead. So Methuselah's Children's coming up pretty soon. Excited about that. Never read it before. I've heard about it. I know uh, most Heinlein readers have um, known that story quite well. So I'm looking forward to that. That's that's a three part. It's like a, it's like a novel, um, a full length novel. Probably look at it over a couple of episodes at least. So uh, we'll see that in in about a week. Uh, for now, let's uh, sign off. I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.